0: Okay, well then, it's um, two minutes after the hour, so I think um, without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce someone who I consider a friend and mentor, um, Dr. Pratik Sinha. Um, So Dr. Sinha um, did his medical training at University of Manchester and got his PhD from Imperial College of London. Um, He did uh, intensive care and I think EM training uh, at Columbia University of New York, and then he was at UC San Francisco. Um, He left UC San Francisco, where he worked with um, Dr. Carolyn Kalfi, and is now at Washington University of St. Louis. Um, Dr. Uh, Sinha has, has, as far as I'm concerned, really revolutionized this idea of phenotypes and subphenotypes of patients with um, ARDS and and really has started to do a lot of work on machine learning in patients with ARDS and subphenotypes of ARDS. Um, and so it's been my pleasure to um, to get to meet and, and interact with Dr. Sinha a little bit more and to follow some of his work, and hopefully um, you all will enjoy hearing him speak as much as I have. So without further ado, Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for joining us here for Critical Care Grand Rounds. I am very much looking forward to this talk.
1: Well, thank you very much first for inviting me. Um, it's uh, always a pleasure to have the opportunity to share some of the work that we're doing, and I understand that uh, Carolyn Calfie um, also presented at this session not so long ago. So anything you will be hearing from me is sort of the budget version of what you have already heard. Um, But, you know, Carolyn has um, thankfully allowed me to collaborate with her and we've worked together um, for a number of years. And so I'd like to share some of the stuff uh, that we've done more recently and um, really talk about the clinical implementation of phenotypes, and whether phenotypes in ARDS can be helpful. <clears throat> so I have no disclosures um, I, in terms of the overview of the talk. What I hope to describe to you over the next sort of 45 minutes to an hour, and please feel free to pause and ask questions. Um, I don't know how many attendees there are, but if it's a small group, then I'm more than happy to answer things as I go along, and then I can speed up if I run out of time. I'm going to talk a little bit about the background to a refresher on how we have gone about discovering the two phenotypes of ARDS, and really the work that I have been focusing on has mostly been about the clinical implementation, and I'm going to dabble a little bit about the future of uh, phenotyping work. So a good place to start this talk would be to ask the question, what is ARDS? Now, I'm going to give a small disclaimer. I know I said I had nothing to disclose before, but that was a lie. Uh, my disclosures are that actually I, I don't really believe in ARDS as it stands with, its, with the Berlin definition or what have you. Um, and so really, ARDS means a lot of things to many people. Um, it was first def- defined in um, it's over 50 years ago now in 1967 in this landmark paper by Ashbaugh and colleagues who described a case series of 12 patients, which was manifest by acute onset of tachypnea, hypoxemia, and loss of compliance after a variety of stimuli. Um, two things I'll point out. One, that already, if you look at the illness column, there is really already a bunch of heterogeneity in here, even on day one, paper one of its description. Um, And also, I would like to point out that there is no bacterial pneumonia in these patients. So fundamentally, this was either a trauma or drug-induced or pancreatitis-induced syndrome. And... uh, you know, since those last sort of five decades or so, a lot of uh, knowledge, money, manpower, human power, resources have been pumped in to try to understand ARDS, both at the bench and at the bedside. Um, and in this uh, timeline by Slutsky and colleagues, they've helpfully collated all of this information for us to try and uh, better understand some of the important landmark um, studies for this. Arguably, I would say two of the most important uh, landmarks in ARDS research has been omitted from this, and these are first in 1994 when we had the AECC definition, and then more recently um, the Berlin definition. And really, these definitions are what I call the epidemiological definitions of ARDS. And in a bid to capture a larger population, we went from something that was so not really well defined, not well, very well described, to having a very broad inclusion criteria, which probably, as you know, for, for, sorry, for those of you who don't know, this is what the Berlin definition is. And um, this mandates that any patient that comes in with a PF ratio of less than 300, that's your PaO2, FiO2 ratio of less than 300, acute onset of symptoms, bilateral opacities and chest X-ray. Um, and is at the time getting at least uh, ventilation of um, getting mechanical ventilation of people five centimeters of water by definition anybody who meets these criteria has ARDS and whilst this probably captures the phenotype that Ashbaugh and colleagues were describing the chances are it probably captures a whole lot more and perhaps problematically it captures patients who don't have what we consider ARDS, whatever that might might mean to other people, um, and and uh, here is a uh, what I would classify as a rhetorical question: um, What do all of these things have in common? And I'm sure most of you um, in this learned audience have already figured out what I'm getting at here, in that all of these things can cause ARDS. Curiously, including uh, um, one of the supportive therapies. For ARDS, which is mechanical ventilation, that in in and of itself can also actually cause ARDS. Um and 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 this um for those of you wondering what's at the bottom left, that's meant to be aspiration, although in that position it seems highly unlikely. Um so really the the, the question is that with all of these different factors that can lead to what we describe as a sort of bottleneck of clinical syndrome, can we ever truly find a therapy that would work across all of these different etiological insults that lead to the same, supposedly same clinical syndrome. And, and this fundamentally is what the problem is. And here is a list of, uh, randomized controlled trials that have tested pharmacotherapies or biological interventions in ARDS. And, uh, I'm sure most of you aren't surprised to know that these are all negative and subsumed within the Berlin definition uh, exists all manners of heterogeneity. And consequently, there are a number of different methods that people have described, but sort of pivoted around um, what I like to call different uh, sort of silos of uh, studying these patients. These include histology. Um, When I was a a medical student many, many years, actually even decades ago, um, the the, the common knowledge was that the archetypal histology of uh, ARDS was diffuse alveolar damage. Um, But now only 50% of the patients at autopsy have diffuse alveolar damage. What's interesting is there is almost no description of it until the AECC definition um, came on board. And it's only after that that we've started seeing this divergence. Um, The etiology is important, and the Berlin definition doesn't include that. There's radiology, clinical physiology, um, and all of these things are important. However, we wanted to find an approach to biologically classify these patients. And really, um, what I'm going to describe to you is our approach to molecular phenotyping um, and what we wanted to do was use a method that was unbiased, um, composite of clinical, use a composite of clinical and biological data. Um, and this was really the aim of the studies that um, Dr. Kalfi, who I think you can see at the top right corner, which is hidden by my uh, Zoom thing, uh, what Dr. Kalfi um, tried to do was to find unbiased approaches using multivariate data to find subgroups within ARDS. And subsequently... When we got an early signal, the idea was to show that this is robust, reproducible, and importantly, generalizable um, to other populations of ARDS and not just randomized controlled trials. And then really, the idea is to demonstrate that it's useful, but more importantly, that use can be harnessed at the bedside um, in a way that is clinically implementable. And I'll talk more about that um, as we go along. Uh, And so... The approach that we have used to identify phenotypes is called latent class analysis. And there is a paper, if more of you want if you, if you want to um, read up about it, is a practitioner's guide to LCA, um, which I wrote together with Kevin DeLkey, who is another one of my mentors from UCSF and he really is a world expert at latent class analysis. Um, and if you want to read more about it, this is sort of a kind of a beginner's guide to latent class analysis, which I wrote with the idea of I wish somebody had given me this, when I first started in the lab many, many years ago. Um, so it's, I, I hope it's somewhat straightforward to try and understand. And latent class analysis is a form of mixture modeling. And if you can imagine a multivariate distribution in a population demarcated by this uh, um, the continuous darker line, hidden underneath it are sort of subgroups or latent classes, which are only detectable by this latent modeling. And there is no other way to detect it. Um, And uh, as you can see here, it's proposed in these dotted lines that there are three latent classes hidden within this population. Um, It's in a very, very simplistic way. You can think of it as a as a modeling approach to identify unsupervised, unsupervised modeling to identify subgroups. It's not quite that Um, it identifies unmeasured subgroups. We first applied this to randomized controlled trials using pre-enrollment data, so pre-randomization data. And we used a composite of biological data, which is in this case was protein biomarkers, and clinical data. And now um, consistently, we have identified two phenotypes of ARDS. This um, graph is from one particular study, which is the secondary analysis of the SAILS trial. What you can see on your x-axis are all the continuous variables that were in the lca model and uh, each dot that you see here is the mean standardized value where the mean is zero and plus one is one standard deviation away minus one would be one standard deviation below the mean and each dot for that particular variable In the red line is the hyperinflammatory, and the blue line is the hypoinflammatory. So the soluble TNFR receptor 1, IL-8, IL-6, were kind of 0.8 to 0.6 standard deviation higher than the mean in the hyperinflammatory, and conversely, it was um, that much lower in the hypoinflammatory. And for obvious reasons, we call the hyperinflammatory IL hyperinflammatory because of elevated levels of IL 8, IL 6, soluble TNFR receptor 1, pi 1, creatinine, and other markers of organ failure. It was also associated with lower levels of bicarbonate, of protein C platelets, and uh, systolic blood pressure. So Um, sorry, one of the things I forgot to mention, about 30% of the population kind of consistently is comprised of the hyperinflammatory phenotype. Now, mortality has consistently been higher in the hyperinflammatory phenotype compared to the hypoinflammatory phenotype. Now, in terms of uh, the ability to show that this is robust and reproducible, we first ran this across five trials, which is the first five rows. Independently, we found the two phenotypes. Then we pointed our latent class analysis approach to two observational cohorts of patients with ARDS, which is valid and early. Um, and then at the bottom here is the restored trial, which is a pediatric population of ARDS. And here too, we found that there were two phenotypes with actually very similar biological characteristics but unsurprisingly mortality was considerably lower in this population as the patients were much younger but mortality is about 40 to 50 percent in the hyperinflammatory phenotype compared to 20 to 30 percent in the hyperinflammatory phenotype amongst adult patients so one of the reasons why I think people have been interested in our lines of investigation is that we have observed consistently some differential treatment responses in the in the phenotypes to randomized interventions in secondary analyses of our trials. We've observed differential treatment responses to PEEP in the alveoli trial, and more on that later. We also observed differential treatment responses to fluid management strategy where um, in, in the secondary analysis of FACT, which tested liberal versus conservative fluid in, uh, in patients with ARDS and increased fluids. So uh, a sort of a liberal fluid management strategy was counterintuitively more beneficial in the hyperinflammatory phenotype. Whereas in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, increased fluids led to harm. And in the secondary analysis of the Simvastatin trial, um, which was the harb 2 study, we observed a significant survival benefit with simvastatin in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, which we did not observe in the hypoinflammatory phenotype, nor did we observe it in the original trial. It's also important to emphasize that when we stratified these three trials by other markers of severity, such as Apache score or um, by the PF ratio, we did not observe the same heterogeneity of treatment effects, suggesting that our phenotyping schema captures something other than just severity of disease. For the sake of transparency, I will say that in the secondary analyses of the sales trial, which tested the efficacy of resuvastatin versus placebo, we did not observe the same survival benefit with the resuvastatin therapy in the hyperinflammatory phenotype now this could be for many reasons including that statins don't actually work in the hyperinflammatory phenotype but uh, the opportunity to sort of write this paper i was able to go and do a slightly deeper dive into statins and it turns out actually that as a as a molecule the inherent properties of receiver statin are quite different from simvastatin receiver statin is a hydrophilic statin simvastatin is a lipophilic statin same as atorvastatin and remarkably I'm um, sorry. Remarkably, almost all of the data that exists for the putative anti-inflammatory benefits of statins are all in lipophilic statins compared to. Whereas in hydrophilic statins, there's really no evidence either in clinical or preclinical studies that it lowers um, it lowers inflammation. There is some evidence to suggest that hydrophilic statins, such as rosuvastatin, can actually increase your levels of interleukin, which um, which I hadn't realized. Uh, and, and then there's also a question of whether the um, sales trial, um, the dosing may have been suboptimal. So at this point, um, like this chap here, we were stuck because we weren't really sure how to implement these phenotypes clinically. Uh, and the issue being that the latent class models that we used are comprised of 30 to 40 variables. And all the values, as you may remember from the chart that I showed you before, with a crisscross, that the y-axis comprised the standardized variables. So we essentially z-scored the variables, where zero was the population mean and one was standard deviation. So all of the all of the data that we use in these models are transformed to population distributions. So implementing them prospectively at a patient level becomes quite challenging. So the prob- the first, our first approach to this problem. Was to develop models that were parsimonious, comprised of somewhere between three to four variables. Um, and our objective was obviously to develop simpler models to identify these phenotypes at the bedside. And now we built um, parsimonious models. There was uh, a whole bunch of uh, machine learning approaches that we used for feature selection, which I'm not going to bore you, bore you with right now. Um, but what we did was we used ARMA, alveoli, and FACT as a model to train and identify the features and build simple logistic regression models. And then we valid- validated it in a fourth data set, which was sales. And what we found that um, very um, with the models comprising of three to four variables, these were actually quite accurate. As an example, one of the models comprised of IL-8, bicarbonate and protein C, and the four variable model was um, IL 8 bicarbonate protein C with vasopressor use. And this is what we found that the AUCs, the area under the receiver op- operator characteristic curves, were actually pretty good. And these parsimonious models were quite good at identifying these phenotypes. And importantly, when we use one of these parsimonious models to identify the phenotypes in HARP2, which you will remember, we found a treatment benefit with simbastatin using this model here too. We were able to identify the same treatment benefits. So, the shortcoming of these parsimonious models is that we don't have a point of care assay that we can use to be able to, that we can use to try and identify these phenotypes at the bedside. So, in this very, very small study, which was a, um, a substudy of the FINE study, which is an ongoing which is an ongoing prospective trial run by uh, Professor Danny Macaulay from the UK. And this study we did with uh, Professor Tamas Zakomeni. What we did here was that we um, used the parsimonious model in a subset of patients in COVID-19. It was in two centers in the UK. Um, and there are only 39 patients. And I'm going to give you a little backstory about why there are only 39 patients. This study we did in March 2020 when COVID happened, and the fine study was already ongoing for patients with ARDS, that we were trying to use the parsimonious model with a point of care test to try and allocate the two phenotypes. And then the uh, UK government banned using blood samples without BSL-3 precautions. So it brought the study to a crashing halt. But um, we were able to get data from 39 patients. We used a novel point-of-care assay, which has been developed specifically for phenotyping, um, where we measured IL-6 and soluble TNFR receptor 1, and we used serum bicarbonate to allocate phenotypes. And really what this shows was that, what this study showed was that real-time phenotyping is feasible as long as we have, um, A, a use for it, but B, there is enough interest in it so that um, uh, diagnostic companies are willing to invest money to try and develop these platforms. Of course, the, the, this is only 39 patients, and it needs some, uh, some proper validation, which Dr. Um, Danny McCauley is um, in the process of doing with the uh, broader FIND study. So contingent on the fact that we don't have a point of care assay, we are still stuck. Um, as you can see from all of these uh, grown men who, uh, I don't know what um, cognitive algorithm leads you down this path, but obviously it's very common. Um, but uh, nevertheless, we uh, wanted to try and circumnavigate the issue of biomarkers. And so to do this, we derived Clinical classifier models that are reliant on readily available clinical data. So we built machine learning models that only use um, only used clinical data. And this study was done with uh, um, alongside um, Dr. Matt Cherpek, who's. Uh, who's a, a physician scientist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and all of these studies that I'm showing you um, have also been done with Dr. Carolyn Calfee. Um, so this has been a close collaboration with her too throughout throughout all of these. So here we used readily available clinical data only as a predictor variable. So we took biomarkers completely off the table. We used a machine learning algorithm called XGBoost, which is a form of gradient-boosted machine, um, it's a recursive partitioning technique um, whereby each tree is built into the model, and as we add each sequential tree, the new tree learns from the classification er- errors of or the or the misclassification of the previous tree and incorporates that into the new model that is developed. And so, essentially, this tree learns as it goes along. Um, we again had an independent training set. And an independent validation set. And I'm just going to leave this up here for a moment so that you can see that the variables that we used were actually ones that are relatively frequently collected across most ICUs. They comprise of demographics, vital signs, respiratory variables, and laboratory tests. And so, The models performed very well. I'm going to show you um, the results of that shortly. Most of the AUCs were 0.93 to 0.96. Now, this is a chart that shows the top 10 variables of of the variables within the XGBoost model that were the most contributory. And as you can see from the red and the orange, that laboratory tests and vital signs dominated heavily the uh, variables that contributed to trying to identify the phenotypes. Now, when we kept the alveoli trial, which tested the efficacy of high PEEP versus low PEEP in patients with ARDS, we found that the XGBoost model, which only comprised of clinical data, had an AUC of 0.95. About 45%, the, sorry, the overall mortality in the hyperinflammatory phenotype was 45% compared to 20% in the hyperinflammatory phenotype. Remember, This is using the clinical classifier model only. And we didn't use alveoli to train the model. We just tested it here. So it's been kept completely abstracted. We found that high PEEP was associated with increased mortality in the hypoinflammatory phenotype, whereas high PEEP was associated with decreased mortality in the hyperinflammatory phenotype. And this treatment interaction was significant. But importantly, at least from the standpoint of this paper, These findings recapitulate the original LCA study that Carolyn Calfee did in 2014, suggesting that using these clinical data-only models, we can actually identify the phenotypes, but also capture the important clinical information of mortality, but also of heterogeneity of treatment effect. So the next set of studies I'm going to show you is some of our latest work. And this is done by um, Dr. Manoj Madali, who's a Palm Critical Care Fellow at Stanford University. And uh, in this study, what we did was we wanted to evaluate how well do these clinical classifier models work in observational cohorts of ARDS? So we wanted to see the generalizability of these clinical models. We uh, tested this in two studies, VALID and EARLY. Both of these studies had LCA phenotypes from some data that I showed you before. So we were able to actually test model efficacy. Moreover, one of the other things that we wanted to do was we wanted to see whether if we get data from the EHR, so all the data sets that we've used up until now, the data has been manually entered by coordinators. But the idea would be at some point that we're able to deliver EHR embedded clinical trials. So we have the machine learning model in the EHR, which identifies the phenotypes, and then you would allocate them therapies in a clinical trial. So we wanted to see if we got the data automatically out of the EHR and fed it into the XGBoost model, would we be able to see this? Would the um, model be equally as accurate? And then what we did was we took this clinical classifier model and we pointed it at lung save um, and for those of you who don't know, LungSafe is one of the largest observational cohorts um, of ARDS that's ever been collected. It was from patients from 50 different countries. And here we did not have the LCAD phenotype. So we couldn't assess model accuracy. But what we were able to do was to look at um, the clinical utility of the phenotypes in this very large cohort of ARDS. Invalid and in early, the clinical classifier model actually had pretty good AUCs with an AUC of 0.93 in early and 0.91 in valid. Importantly, in both of these studies, we captured the same biological information that we're interested in capturing, which given the AUC is probably unsurprising, but nevertheless, it's good to see it with your own eyes that the levels of IL-6 and IL-8, both in valid and early, were markedly different in the hyper compared to the hypoinflammatory phenotype but not only that all the other protein biomarkers that define these phenotypes were similarly elevated in the two phenotypes which were derived using only clinical data um <clears throat> excuse me so when we got the uh predictor variables in early where we had access to EPIC we found that the model again had a pretty decent AUC of 0.91, suggesting there is feasibility in trying to identify these phenotypes using just EHR data. And as you would expect, given the biomarkers and the fact that um, the fact that the, the model seems to perform quite well in lung safe, 26% of the patients were of the hyperinflammatory phenotype. 74% of the patients were of the hypoinflammatory phenotype. And importantly, mortality was almost double in the hyperinflammatory phenotype with fewer ventilator free days. And these were both statistically significant. And thanks to one of our collaborators who suggested, hey, why don't you look to see if there's heterogeneity of treatment effect in um, the patients in lung safe, We did a small analysis, which I will caveat here that it is a secondary analysis of observational data. So we should take this with a huge dollops of salt that um, what we did was we stratified the population by the average PEEP that they received between days one and three. And we split the population into tertiles and we took the middle turtle out and we created two groups of low PEEP and high PEEP. And so that there was a bit of separation between the two groups we took out the middle tertile and we, saw, we, we tried to see whether or not there was heterogeneity of treatment effect. And this is what we found. In the hypoinflammatory phenotype, high PEEP was associated with slightly higher mortality. But importantly, high PEEP was associated with survival benefit in the hyperinflammatory phenotype. And this treatment interaction was significant and consistent with what we observed in the alveoli trial which I showed you a few slides again and so really the next big questions are are these phenotypes purely those of ARDS well I'm going to show you some um, data which looks at latent class analysis where we use the same approaches but this time in patients with sepsis uh, what we found um, I've I've already talked to you about later class analysis. I'm going to skip this bit. Um, The study population that we looked at was early, which is an observational cohort of patients with uh, sepsis from UCSF. And valid, which is from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And we looked at all patients who had a diagnosis of sepsis and were admitted to the ICU. And to try and see whether or not the phenotypes that we have observed in these patients with sepsis overlap with the ARDS phenotypes that I've shown you in all the slides leading up to now, we took one of the parsimonious models that we developed to predict ARDS phenotypes and pointed it at these sepsis cords and see how accurate they were at at, at, um, classifying sepsis phenotypes. So these parsimonious models were developed to classify ARDS phenotypes, and we looked at the model performance at uh, classifying sepsis phenotypes. So this is uh, essentially a table of model fit statistics. Each row that you see here is a unique model. Model 1 comprises of one, essentially one class, model 2, two classes, model 3, three classes, and so on and so forth. Invalid, what we found was that the p value for the three class model was higher, was significant, suggesting that it was better than a two class model. However, the number of patients in the three class model was actually quite small, less than 5%. And not only that, it was described by one variable, i.e., those patients who had neutrophil counts of less than 0.3. All of these patients had that one unifying factor in it. And in general, we reject models where we find univariate solutions to very small classes because it's unlikely to be generalizable. So based on that, we we, uh, agreed that the two-class model is the best fit for this population, with about 28% in class two, 72% in class one. And in early, the two-class model was also best fit for this population. Both invalid and in early, as you can see, the characteristics of the two phenotypes were very similar. Where class two um, was consistent with the hyperinflammatory phenotype, and class one was consistent with a hypoinflammatory phenotype. And here's what we found invalid, the hyperinflammatory phenotype was associated with a higher mortality and fewer ventilator free days. And similarly, in early, there was high mortality in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, and with fewer ventilator free days. Now, a legitimate question would be, what about the patients who had ARDS in this population? So what we did in the next bit of analysis was we took out all the patients who had a diagnosis of ARDS and we repeated the analyses with septic patients without ARDS in on days one and day two, and again. We found the same thing, a small group with neutropenia. Um, so we agreed that the two-class model was the best and valid and the same two-class model was the best in early, even after removing ARDS patients from this, uh, from this cohort. So we've got some ways to show that these ARDS phenotypes are generalizable to sepsis. And in fact, they may actually be phenotypes of critical illness, rather than something that is adherent to some notional syndromic diagnosis. And I'm letting my biases all jump out and and Pandora's box has been opened. Um, And so the other question is, can we describe critical illnesses as discrete biological disease states? So rather than what we have clung to for the last 50 years, where we've essentially found it quite ineffective to find therapies. And they've been reliant on classification systems, which have probably been around for a couple of hundred years, or at least since the birth of modern medicine, where we find clinical features and use that to try and separate out populations. The question is that is that sort of approach too simplistic for the complexity and aging population? That we study. Um, and so, what is ARDS? I like to think of ARDS as a, a box of uncertainties. There's diagnostic uncertainty. There is epidemiological inter- uncertainty. I, I mean, truly, nobody really knows what the outcomes of ARDS are. There's biological uncertainty. Um, and I hope I've shown you some of that. There's prognostic uncertainty. Nobody really knows um, what outcomes are like. There's interventional uncertainty. We don't really know um, what interventions work. But I think the most important reason why I think that the current incumbent system is not fit for purpose is because it doesn't provide me with a lexicon in which I can better communicate information to my patients um, i can 't remember in now almost a twenty year well, actually a twenty year career of working as a physician, mostly in and around the ICUs where i 've had to tell a patient 's family that hey your relative is ARDS and therefore um, and fundamentally that 's why I think this uh, and th- our, our current approach is limited so i 'm just going to put a philosophical question out there as i as I wrap up my talk. And say, is it time to move away from our broad critical care clinical diagnoses um, and uh, start thinking about a way of classifying patients that are more biologically intuitive and informative, but also consistent in terms of the prognostic information and value that it can find us? So, uh, oops, I've left my out. So, finally... The question comes of do we need phenotype-specific trials? And really, all the data I've shown you means nothing if we can't find interventions that are potentially useful um, um, to our patients. Uh, and so with that, um, I will put some soul-searching things about what's needed to try and uh, get to real-time phenotyping. Um, and the most important thing is through all of this that we try and keep the patient at the center of uh, center of our thoughts. We have to demonstrate utility, and I think with any translational project, the important questions to ask are: How does this help my patients? And all of the data I've shown you, I have to humbly say that it is experimental. And it lacks any depth of prospective evaluation. And we need to show in trials that by identifying these phenotypes, we can make meaningful changes to their management and their outcome trajectories. The second question is about feasibility. And it's not just trying to identify bedside biomarkers that we can measure, but also overcome clinical skepticism. And really, some of that is through doing trials, but also implementation science. Um, and then there is um, stability. And uh, for those of you who have uh, BD eagle eyes, you will notice that almost all the data I've shown you is from cross-sectional time points. And we know virtually nothing. Well, there is some some data, but really not enough data that allows us to uh, evaluate phenotype trajectory over time. Um, and it's important that we establish the stability of the measurement systems that we use. We have some confidence that because our phenotyping schema is multivariate, that even though individual biomarkers may show instability, over the, the multivariate solution should be somewhat stable. And ultimately, I will say that um, even though our phenotyping schema is consistent, and now we've like looked at it in about 10,000 patients, it is a very, very rudimentary approach to biologically slicing up our p- patient population. And that actually these phenotypes may still be too simplistic. I, I mean, look, I'm going to say it's better than the incumbent system, but I don't even think it comes close to be, being able to capture what is really happening, which I think is um, needs to be temporally informed and it needs to have more biomarkers that are orthogonal to the inflammatory pathway. So to summarize the uh, data that I've shown you, and I'm, I'm kind of almost right on time too, uh, is that we have, I hope I've shown you that we have two distinct phenotypes of ARDS, that these are based on circulating biomarkers, they're robust, reproducible, and that actually they may even extend beyond ARDS. We are coming very close to clinical models that might be implementable in real time and might open up a potential of doing uh, of doing some clinical trials, which is what needs to happen next. It's a route to prognostic and potentially prog- um, predictive enrichment. However, we are currently limited by a lack of prospective evaluation. So, with that, I want to uh, acknowledge um, many of my several of my uh, co-investigators. And collaborators specifically, I want to give out a shout out to Dr. Karen Kalfi um, and many others on this list. But um, more importantly, I want to thank uh, all the investigators, but most importantly, the participants and family members of uh, family members of the of people who've enrolled in these clinical trials and observational studies. Because I'm incredibly indebted to them, where I've uh, managed to sort of have a research career leeching off other people's generosity and good work. Um, so with that, I am, uh, I'm happy to take questions and I thank you for your attention.